this is the message that I shared in Texas. This is a message that I shared in North Carolina. And actually a portion of the message what I shared uh, yesterday. No, day before yesterday uh, to a group of pastors in Ventura County that gathered with Pastor Sam Gallucci who put it together at the Spanish Hills Country Club. And these pastors showed up and it was remarkable and it was a great time. Pastor Sam has kind of taken this under his wing and he's just running with it. So uh, what we're going to take a look at this morning is, um, well, I'll just begin with the verse itself. It's, it's one that is, Genesis means the beginning, and it's a, it's a critical verse, and it's preeminent in the Bible. Um, and it's, it's a fascinating verse because it's reflected again in the New Testament, both in Romans 4, Romans 8, Galatians 3. Uh, Abraham is declared throughout the scriptures as the father of faith. Uh, from him, all major religions in the world have come, whether that's Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. They've all come from Abraham. It all occurred in this passage of Scripture where the Lord said, go out and look at the night sky and count the stars if you're able, so your descendants will be. They'll be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashores. And Abraham said, God, how will I know? I mean, I don't have an heir. He didn't have a child at the time. He didn't realize how his descendants were going to come around. It wasn't until he was you know, 99 that the Lord, you know, uh, and, and Sarah, that there wasn't going to be a, a gynecologist on the planet that said she's capable of having a child. She was, she was older and this didn't, that's not going to happen. Well, the Lord brought along Isaac, which means laughter. And in the process where Abraham was waiting for the heir to come from Sarah, he went out and, and took a handmaid named Hagar and came up with Ishmael and the son of the flesh, son of the spirit. And one ends up it's a long story, but anyways, <clears throat> this verse right here set everything in motion, and you're all here, and I'm here, and churches around the world are gathering because of this verse, and, and really what happened was, God said this to Abraham, and the scripture says, Abraham believed God. Hey, let's read it together, ready? One, two, three, and Abraham believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Righteousness means that he's right with God. Nothing separates him from a relationship with God. Religion, relongari, is a Latin phrase to mean relink, reconnect. We're separated from God by our sin. Abraham was connected to God. He was a sinful man like you and I, but he believed God, and God accredited it, put it on his account as righteousness. He relinked him. Now, how was Abraham relinked? He was a sinful man. Abraham believed that God would send a savior. He was looking forward to a point in the history of, of, of the world that would occur. You and I look back to a point in history that has already occurred. Abraham looked forward to the cross. You and I look back to the cross. He knew it would come, and he trusted by faith, and God made him righteous. So he was saved by grace through faith, trusted God, and he was made right. You and I... The same way, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Abraham was saved by grace through faith. You and I have been saved by grace through faith. What does that mean? It means that there's nothing you can do to obtain your own salvation. God has already secured it for you. It's a debt you could never pay in a thousand lifetimes, and God came and paid the debt. You either receive his free gift of salvation and receive it by faith, and it's given by God. It's God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's by grace through faith. Lord, you said it, I believe it, I receive it. And you're saved and you're right. 
Your sin is washed as white as snow. Though your sins were as scarlet, you've been cleansed. Forgiven. Past, present, future. All taken care of. What was good for Abraham is good for you and me. And here we gather today because in communion, the body had to be broken so the blood could be shed. His body, the bread, blood, the cup. Broken, shed, blood. Why blood? Blood must be shed for the forgiveness, the remission of sins. That's the price. The debt was paid. A sinless man walked the earth and died in your place and in my place. I couldn't die for you because I'm a sinful man. You can't die for me. You're a sinful man or woman, right? But Jesus was completely God, completely man, and was without sin and died in our place and paid the debt. And we received that. It's grace. God's riches at Christ. Christ's expense. Saved by grace through faith. Lord, I believe it. I'm forgiven. I'm cleansed. I'm right. Righteous. Same with Abraham. Same with you and me. Now, pause for a moment. I'm going to show you a video. I like this video because I've been interacting with a, uh, somebody we've become more and more familiar with, Charlie Kirk, and he sent me this video, and I'd seen it before, and <clears throat> we've been working through this process because he, he, he wants this to be um, developed. Somewhere along the line, there's been a disconnect with the church, and I'm watching this man in the video, and he's at a, a university in Illinois, and he's speaking to an atheist young man. And, and this young man, my heart goes out to him. He's, he's really, he's just sweet as can be. And the thing I love about this apologist is I wish the body of Christ were like this guy. Because you, you hear the way he, he's speaking. It's so tender and thoughtful. And you're watching this dialogue between these two people. And yet very little, if any scripture at all, is expressed. And yet he's an apologist for the Christian faith. And, and you watch this process, and Charlie and I were discussing it as I was over at Kaiser visiting one of the congregants, and I was getting ready to walk in, we're talking on the phone, and this really hit me. And I know we're going to go on a little journey, but it'll all make sense in the end, especially when we conclude, or I should say, come to the, the pinnacle of it with communion. I think it's going to be one of the more profound and special communions you've ever participated in. And it, it's going to begin with this video. And I want you to see this video because it's going to deal with a standard. It's, it's who says. There's, there's man's law and God's law. And which one's valid? How do we live together as a community? I mean, there's order in this room. Look at the chairs. They look just, and they're all spaced, and everybody has the same amount of leg room. And some people don't want anyone sitting next to them, so they made sure they sat in other areas. And, and temp, temperature's nice, and... We're getting along with each other. But there's one thing we have in common in this room. We're all selfish. Is there anyone in the room who's not? Well, I am the least selfish person I know. Well, <laughs> certainly pride's not a problem for you. <laughs> How do we get along? And, and over time, you, you, you put people in a room together, and you're going to end up, like in a junior high class, you're going to end up with a diva, and she's going to be the, you know, she's going to be causing the other girls that she pounds, and then you get a gang, and you're going to have a gang leader, and every, there's always going to be somebody who's going to take authority over everyone else, and, it's, and, and they're going to be that leader at the expense of everyone beneath them, and, and now we're asking ourselves, what is all this about, God? Because you're going to see in a minute how it puts together. Watch this video, and it'll set us up for where we're going today. Enjoy this, and 
Take it all in. Hi, I'm Kyle. Hey, Kyle. I'm an atheist. Um, hey, thanks for coming. Of course, of course. Um, I love uh, hearing these kind of debates and stuff. Um, you asked why would you be an atheist if you possibly might know if God exists. My answer to that question is simple. It's just the fact that there's so many terrible things in the Bible. Like, at one point, um, Jesus says to you know one of his disciples, "It's great that they're you know torturing their slaves here, but only lightly. Even though, even though they did nothing wrong, it's great that they're doing it." He doesn't give any reason to why he says that he doesn't do anything. I don't understand why you would want to follow such a god. My question to you is why you would follow such a god. Okay, let's let's not even look at the context of that passage. Let's just assume what you said is 100 percent true. Okay, as an atheist, why is that wrong? Why is that wrong? Yeah. Morally, I would think that each and every human being here is the same. We are all, we all have the same rights, we all have the same wants and needs. Um, I think we all should do the same. I think that we should, especially the God that we should follow, should have higher expectations of knowing such a thing. Okay, but you seem to be assuming that certain things are really right and people have certain rights, even if there is no God. How do you justify that? What's your standard of rightness? My standard of rightness would be a fair society. What do you mean by fair? Fair. Everything is equal. I personally, I have nothing wrong. I find nothing wrong with a communistic state. That's just my opinion. Um, I don't think it's something you can be afraid of. Everybody seems to be afraid of it. Okay. Um, in the United States at least. But my, that's just my thought of fairness, is the idea that all humans should be the same. We all okay, so it's just it's your thought of fairness. What if Hitler has a different idea of fairness? Is he wrong? He's not wrong. He is. Hitler's not wrong. He is not well in a, in a kind of idea that we all have our own opinions. I feel like we should take the utilitary view and go with what is best for the most amount of us. Um, okay, but what do you mean by best? What would mean the greatest positives uh, for all for the most amount of people? Okay, but you're assuming that you're, you're assuming there's a best out there. You're assuming a moral law. Where does that moral law come from? If there's no God, moral law. I personally just think that human beings should be able to make up their own their own laws. I mean, each people in time have found their own moral laws, and I think that they become better and better over time. Better, but you, you you wouldn't even know what better was unless you knew what best was. So I'm asking you, what is your standard of best to say that certain people are closer? to the best or better than others? What, what's the standard? Is it just your opinion or is there something beyond your opinion which says this is good? Well, I mean, we've all heard about utopias and a perfect society and things like that. That would be great in a way, but also we all, we've all seen like the books like uh, Huxley's, I believe, I forget what it's called. But he makes a book on you know, the great perfect world? society. Yes. Okay, yeah. um, it's that perfect society that everybody's perfect. Everybody, you know, there's no murder, there's no any of that. Okay, but the question is, and maybe I'm just not stating it properly, what's wrong with murder if there's no God? Why shouldn't I kill other people to get what I want if there's no God? Because it doesn't help society. But why do I care about society? Because we no as a God. group should worry about society. We should be making the betterment of ourselves. But Kyle, you're, you're importing a moral law into a frame that has no moral law. You're, as an atheist, you're trying to say there is no God, which means there is no standard of rightness out there, but I'm saying this is my personal standard of rightness, which would mean somebody else could come along like Hitler or Stalin and say, Kyle, if there's no standard beyond neither you or me, then I can do whatever I want, including killing you to get what you have. 
It's a very good point. It's a very good point. <laughs> I can see where you're coming from. Um, I don't think that God is needed in in a sense of for. I, I'm not looking for perfection. I don't think anybody here is. You know, I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for human beings just to simply work together to better society. I don't. I, again, I don't really see that need for a perfect identity up above. I don't. Okay, I, I, I mean, I'm not saying that an atheist can't be a good person. I'm not saying atheists don't know right from wrong. That's not my point. My point is, is that it seems to me it's difficult to justify what rightness is if everything is reduced to human opinion. Which human gets to decide, right? It's just, it's subjective then, as, as Levi was saying before, it's just in my subjective mind. If there's not an external referent to say that this is good and this is evil, then we're all just here and we're fending for ourselves. Now, a lot of people will say, and I appreciate your question, it's a very good question. Uh, a lot of people will say, uh, well, we need to cooperate to get along, right? Actually, that's not true. Take somebody like Stalin. He cooperated with very few people, just his henchmen, and he killed 20 million people to, got, to get what he wanted. And then he died on his deathbed at the age of 74, shaking his fist at God one last time. He never paid for his sins on this life. Okay? So the problem, it seems to me, is we know, and you know right, and you know what, what's right and wrong, and I know it too, and I don't need to believe in God to know that. I just need there to be a God to justify it. Let me put it this way. Um, a lot of atheists say, look, I know right from wrong, and I agree with you know right from wrong. But that's like saying, I can know what a book says and deny there's an author, which is true. But there would be no book to read unless there was an author. The same is true when it comes to morality. You can know what the right thing to do is and deny there's a God. But there would be no right thing to do unless there was a God. Does that make sense? I guess I can see your point, yes. Let me, would, would, if I gave you a book, would you read it? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs>What I really appreciate about that video is what I think folks uh, my age and maybe a little bit younger don't quite grasp is uh, how sincere that young man is. And for the younger folks in the room, um, their generation looks at socialism and looks at uh, different forms of government not because they, they're, they're anti-Christian. They're looking at it because they're looking for e equity. They're looking for quality. Uh, they're, they're looking for equality. And, and they, they're trying to come up with some way to govern their lives and, and look to their future. And they're saying, how do we accomplish this? And, and in, in studies, it almost seems like it's a utopian society that we can pull this off. And yet, it's been practiced in 40 different countries over the history of the 6,000 years of recorded history, and it's never worked. And why is that? The bottom line is, we're all kind of selfish. We are kind of, we, we're severely selfish. And, and we really do have envy. And we covet. And, I, and even, even the idea of socialism itself is you're coveting someone else's stuff. And, it, and it's a violation of two of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. But we think, well, it's unfair. Why do they have some when people are starving? I get that part of it. And, and sadly, we never address that. And the church doesn't address it. And these young people are just looking saying, what's the point of the church? And that's why they're checking out in droves. 
And, and we're, in a, we're in a conflict. If the election were held today with 30 years of age and under populace, 75% would vote for socialism. Because they don't see the answers in the church. And, and they don't, there's a disconnect. And here's why. We're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We get that. And all the kids come to church and they love the idea of being forgiven for our sins. But then they start to think, well, wait, who are you to tell me it's a sin? Because freedom is getting to do what I want to do. And now you're infringing on my freedoms. And so we, and, and the church struggles to try to explain it. And so we, well, let's, let's reconsider some of the teachings and try to figure out a way around this. And this idea of saved by grace, and the gospel's all about grace. And it's all about, hey, preach the gospel. It's all about grace. And the church loves grace. We love grace. The grace is, is listed in Genesis 15 all the way through the book of Revelation. Genesis to, to Revelation, it, it's, it's the theme. God's reconciling. He wants you to walk with him. He wants you to be with him. Amen. But it came at an expense. Jesus had to die. Why do you have to die? To pay for a penalty. What penalty? Violation of God's moral law. Well, who says that? Scripture does. So, when you want to make up your own laws, you're going to make up your own government. And if you don't have anything to govern you by, then you struggle a little bit. And so we're, we're having this conversation, and guys like that are getting it done, but the pulpits in America are complicit in, in losing an entire generation. We've lost them. And I, I don't fault the young people for leaving. I, I, I don't think the church addresses issues that are so important to them. They want to know how to deal with this life. They're not getting it in school. And if they are, it's confusing. And they're seeing a hopeless future. I mean, this is the fourth world crisis that I've survived that the world was going to flood in 10 years. But for them, it's the first time. And it's always the harbingers of death and doom and destruction. And, and we got to stop the straws or it's over. We laugh, we laugh, but for them, what kind of a future do they hold when every single entity in the culture is declaring this and every time they turn on the television, it's declaring it? Because there's no one up there telling them anything different because we don't engage the culture. And they're looking for answers. So if we're saved by grace through faith, saved by grace through faith, Abraham believed God, credited him as righteousness. We're saved by grace through faith. Abraham was saved by grace through faith. We got our get out of hell free card. And, and we sing about it and we raise our hands. And we think the gospel is, God bless you, I see your hand. God bless you, I see your hand. We're like, whoa. And, and the church becomes irrelevant. I, I, I've looked in the scriptures. I've never seen anywhere in the scriptures where people became disciples by raising their hand. I don't even see where anywhere in the scriptures they raise their hand. Never saw, I just don't see it. I don't even see where it says make converts. The scripture says make disciples. It doesn't just say make disciples. It says they make disciples of nations. Nations have boundaries, borders, constitutions, compacts, ideologies. And you're like, wait, what? 
Church doesn't address that. We just have saved by grace through faith. Saved by grace through faith. And I love being saved by grace through faith because there's no way I'd be up here if I wasn't saved by grace through faith. I preach that. I preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We do communion. That's a declaration of our salvation. There's only one good thing in this room, and that's Jesus. And the only reason why we have anything in common is the fact that Jesus, we're all beggars showing other beggars where the food is, and the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We've all come as sinners, and we're saved by grace through faith. But what, were, what are we saved from? Violation of cosmic Failure. We violated God's standard. There is a God. There's two ideologies in the world. There is a God and there isn't a God. If there is a God, we're accountable to him. If there isn't a God, we make up our own rules and you're like that young man there. And honestly, I don't think the young man wants to say there isn't a God. I don't think any young people want to do that. I think they get tired of looking at the church that says there's a God and doesn't see a, a, a road map on how to live together. And they look at this world over here that is involved in politics and is involved in the media and it's involved in arts and entertainment. It's involved in all of it. And the church is apathetic and truncated and myopic. And they're saying, at least somebody's giving me a road map. And they won't let me in because I do this, 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 and this. And yet over here, they have access and answers. Not good ones. But the fascinating thing is in these two ideologies where there's a God and there isn't a God, in this one it ultimately ends up where your faith is lost even if you have to shelve your brain to say there's no absolutes. I was telling a young man the other day, I go, there's no absolutes? He goes, yeah. I go, do you believe that absolutely? <laughs> I love that line. It's fun. And it works because it's true. So we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. And this is, this is the part that's struggling to me. In the book of Romans, Paul addresses this, and he says, the law doesn't save you, grace does. He says it this way, the promise granted through faith for the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. You're saved by faith. So we have this faith experience, this feeling, and you, you see, we're not saved by the law, and I'm thinking, well, what's the point of the law? And here, Paul even emphasizes in Romans 8, he says, the law can't save you. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. And he says, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. He fulfilled it when he died in our place. He paid the penalty. So the law can't save you. And here's the part that floors me. Genesis 15, Abraham saved by grace. It's not until we get to Exodus, 430 years later. 430 years later. Abraham saved by grace through faith, Genesis 15. 430 years later, God gives the law. Why, why would he screw it up? I mean, we already had grace. We got our get out of free card. Why would God go and screw it up by giving us a law 430 years later? If all the church is about is, God bless you, I see your hand. God bless you, I see your hand. Play the music louder. Let's feel his presence. And then we go back to our houses, and then our kids are trying to find a road map, and we don't have any answers for them. Why would he do that? Why would he give the law 430 years later? Well, here's what happened when the law was given. You had three to five million Jews. They were in slavery in Egypt, slavery, 
6,000 years of recorded history, slavery has been with us throughout the entire realm of time. America's faults, which are many, are universal faults. Every other culture's had them too. We've all participated in slavery. There isn't a culture on the face of the earth that hasn't participated in slavery. Our faults are universal. Our successes are unique. Our due process laws, the civil war to stop slavery, our child labor laws, women's suffrage, civil rights, those are all unique. Oh, our faults are universal. Just like Egypt, America had slavery. What is slavery? Slavery is real simple. I'm going to pick people who are going to make my life easy at their expense. Why? Because I'm selfish. And I'm going to figure out a way to divide. I'm going I'm to split it by some sort of thing so people can see that I'm better than they are. So it'll be the color of our skin. It might, might, might be the, the, the color of our hair, the features of our face, the territory in which we came from. And then we're going to make them out to be less than us. And then we're going to subject them to serve us. And then here's what happens. Three to five million Jews in slavery in Egypt being oppressed by Pharaoh. And they begin to cry out to God, wait a minute, God, I thought we were created in your image. Fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in our mother's womb. God, where are you? I thought all men were created equal. I thought, we were, I thought it said in Genesis, let us make man in our image. Look around the room. That image of God is really diverse. Let us make man in our image. And they're saying, God, if, if we've been created equal, what, why is this happening to us? Lord, my children are dying and they're not being cared for and I have no ability to provide for them and, and I'm, I'm being abused and my children are being sent off into slavery. my family's being sp- split apart and husband and wife are being separated as they're sold on the slave block and they cry out to God and God hears their cry, sends him Moses. Moses comes and he has been used as an instrument of the Lord. He approaches Pharaoh. God gives him supernatural authority and he brings on these 10 plagues on the nation of Egypt. He had the plague of flies and frogs and turning the, the uh, Nile River blood red. And we can go on and on and on. He does these 10 plagues. But the 10th one was called the angel of death. Now this is critical. The angel of death. God said to Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take all of the children of Israel. And I want them to take a lamb and sacrifice it, which is the lamb of God. Which is, it's a, it's a. It's a type. It's a picture. See it? And take that lamb and slaughter it and put the blood in the basin of the door. Now every home had a basin because you'd walk on dirty streets that weren't paved or concrete like this. So your feet would be dirty. But before you entered into someone's house, you would wash your feet. He says, I want you to put the blood in the basin. And then I want you to take hyssop and I want you to dip it into the blood in the basin. And I want you to put it on the top of the door. And then dip it again and put it on the side of each of the doorposts. And when the angel of death comes, if it sees the blood, it will pass over that house. But the house that doesn't have the blood covering it, the firstborn will die. And God's saying, I'm gonna give my firstborn, my son, Jesus, so that you live. But if you don't have his blood, your firstborn will die. That's the wages of sin. And so the people do this. They get into the house. 
And the angel of death comes and he passes over. And what's interesting about the blood, blood in the basin, blood on the top, blood on each door. You see the cross behind me? Where would Jesus bleed from? Well, the crown of thorns was on his head. The nail was in his feet. The nail's in his wrist. That's the blood of the lamb. Symbolic there. They trust the Lord. He sets them free. Pharaoh releases them after the firstborn has died. Pharaoh releases them and they begin to leave. Pharaoh thinks to himself, I'm losing my economic ability to operate my economy on the backs of other people and I'm going to lose my status and my level of comfort. And he has a change of mind. He says, send the army after them. So he sends the entire Egyptian army to go get the three to five million Jews and put them back into slavery. And as the army's chasing them, Moses and the three to five million Jews come up to the Red Sea and on either side are the mountains and behind them is the Egyptian army and, and they're doomed. And these three to five million Jews who had cried out to God had, had been delivered by the Lord and begin to cry out to him again after they complained a little bit, which is just like us. And then Moses puts his staff into the Red Sea. The Red Sea parts. And they begin to walk through the Red Sea. Miracle. And it's this bright light in front of them, guiding them. And behind them, God brings utter darkness so that the Egyptians are completely lost, running into the water, just trying to figure out where they are. They can't see their hand in front of their face. And as a result of them being slowed down by the darkness and the light being for the Israelites, they begin to separate in distance so that the three to five million Jews get out on the other side and Pharaoh's army is trapped. God settles the waters and drowns the entirety of the Egyptian army. Another miracle. Then they get into, fascinatingly enough, as they're delivered, they get into uh, not only the, the Red Sea parting and they get to the other side, but then they get into the desert. And here they are in the desert, three to five million Jews, and God begins to bring manna in the morning, which is the word manna translated. It's really a funny word. It means, what is it? <laughs> That's the literal translation. What is it? You come out in the morning, you're like, oh, this is, what is it? <laughs> I'm not sure. Do you know what is this? this what is it? And they're like, oh, it tastes, well, it's kind of like, well, what is it? And every morning it was there. Every morning. I mean, in the desert. It'd be like Lancaster going out and there's loaves of bread all over every morning. You're like, oh, what is it? And they ate that for 40 years and water would come out where there wasn't any water. They're in the desert. Moses would touch the rock, speak to the rock. Water would come out. And then they got so frustrated with manna, even though it was delicious, they, they want, I want meat. And God blows quail off course. Brings them into the desert. Big old flock of quail. And they're coming in. And you, you know as they're coming into the desert, it was probably like scorching hot. And then they start to descend and, and their, their feathers burn off. And probably when they landed in their hands, they were already roasted, you know. <laughs> and, and the scripture says their shoes don't wear out and their clothes don't wear out for 40 years. Miracle, 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 miracle. And, and when they get into this wilderness with all these miracles, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. That's him up there. It's kind of a shadow. He's just, he's not that big. And he goes up on Mount Sinai because God, God calls him up there and they hear the voice and they see the fire on the rock and they see the light and they know God's up there and Moses goes up and Joshua stands at a distance and, and the people are down below waiting for Moses and he goes up there and and. You know, God's glory is so intense that Moses' face glows when he comes off the mountain. I mean, the presence, they, they call it the Shekinah glory of God. And, and, and God gives him ten commandments. It's a downloaded moral app. It's like he has his, his iPhone. It's like, bling. 
And he's like, oh, thank you, God. And he comes down with these ten commandments. And I've, I've covered this before. First five commandments is our relationship with God. It's vertical. Second five commandments is our relationship with each other, horizontal. The fifth commandment goes both vertical and horizontal because it's honor thy mother and father. It's the only commandment that comes with a promise. You'll live long on the earth. It'll go well with you. You'll live long on the earth. How to submit to authority, order. And God says, that's not only for your mom and dad, but that's also for me. I'm your heavenly father. So that fifth commandment goes back and forth. Moses comes down, and when he comes down off the mountain, the entire community is engaged in debauchery. They've got a golden calf, they're partying, they're just, they, they, they're sleeping with everybody. It's like, it's a rave. And they have this incredible party. And Moses comes down, and he's like, whoa, wait a minute. You're out of control. It's freedom. We've thrown off restraints. We're having a good time. This is what freedom is, to be able to do whatever I want. Now, does anybody run their home that way? You know what, kids? You go ahead and have gummy bears for breakfast, whatever you want. You're free. You don't want to do homework. It's okay. You just... You just explore. Just whatever you feel. You just do it. This is a little loud, isn't it, honey? And you let your kids just have at it. Whatever they want. There's no rules because it's freedom. Is that freedom? Well, if you think it's freedom, I got news for you. Your kids are going to end up a mess. It destroys culture. They come down and everybody's a mess. And Moses comes down and says, this is from God. And it will be implemented in our lives. And they're like, Whoa, what is it? Rules. Rules. Five commandments here, five commandments here, rules. And they put it the center of the culture. They put the temple right there in the center. And they build the community around the temple. And they're like, all right, God's there. We can see the pillar of fire by night and the smoke by day, and we're accountable to him. And if we screw this up, we're going to stand before him. And so we, gotta, I, we can't steal from each other. We can't lie. We can't covet. Um, we have to honor him and make him preeminent and honor our mother and father, also honor God. No idols. We got to get rid of that calf. Um, and this is how we're going to dwell as a community. It becomes the center of the community. And you're like, well, I don't want to live in a place like that where you have to go to church every Sunday and make a center. stupid. But here's what's interesting. Before you dismiss that, young folks, before you dismiss it, follow me, because this is your heart's cry. Miracles in the wilderness, the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, manna, water, quail, clothes don't wear out. Amazing miracles. But what is the greatest miracle of all? The greatest miracle of all. Young people, pay attention, because this is your heart's cry. It was that young man's cry. The greatest miracle of all. The law made it possible for three to five million Jews to live at peace with each other without a police force or a standing army. 
They didn't even need Antifa. (laughs) They accomplished what it is you want. They got along with each other. But here's where the church is complicit and where we've let down the culture. We just, we just say, hey, you're saved by grace through faith. Forget the law. The law's only there to tell you you can't keep it, so you need grace. But God gave the law 430 years after that point. Why did he give it? So that they wouldn't kill each other and they wouldn't steal. And they'd have a, a culture that the kids would be happy about. But the church doesn't implement that anymore. We just raise our hand. We don't make disciples of nations. We don't contemplate immigration laws. We don't contemplate how to dwell with one another. We don't, we don't look at any of these things. We don't even teach them. Our founders thought about it. Our founders labored over how then shall we now live with a community of people where we can get along with the least amount of law enforcement and have the most freedom And they went back and they searched diligently through the laws because they knew God had given that. And they saw the reason for it, for civil government. And they began to examine it. And one of the things is in Exodus 18, it was when Jethro came to Moses. He sees the three to five million Jews and they're coming to him saying, what's God saying about the issue that I have with my brother or my neighbor? And and Moses is trying to regulate all this. And Jethro comes, he says, you need to have a representative form of government because you're only one guy. He says, what you need, and he lays this out, and this is what Jethro says, moreover, you shall select from all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And, And when he says this, Jethro says, you want able, folks who know what they're doing, they're smart. And they fear God, because if they fear God, they're going to do what's right. They're applying the first five, and they're going to do really well with the second five. And he says, and, and they need to be men of truth. They can't say that truth is subjective. They have to say that truth is truth. Two plus two is four. They have to say there's truth. They have to see the laws of nature, nature's God, that we're bound by those things. Look for those folks. And he says, hating covetousness. That's an interesting one, because... Hey, socialism is coveting the rich people's money. They have too much and I want some of it. Come on, be honest. They don't deserve it. I mean, they have billions of dollars from the iPhones that they made. Look, I looked it up on my iPhone. (laughs) And they should give me some. Why? Well, because they have so much. Well, Didn't they make that money providing you this thing of convenience by designing it? Yeah, but so? I should get the iPhone for free too. Well, you're going to be just as selfish as the other guy. And who has, whose money are you going for next? We're selfish. And then he says, look, here's how you're going to do it. Break it down into thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. You've got to develop this appropriately. And so they do this. And our founders read that. And then they also saw this passage of scripture in Isaiah 33, 22, where it says, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, and the Lord is our king, he will save us. And you wonder, okay, how's that applicable and what did our founders do with it? It's real simple, this is what our founders did. Uh, thousands is the federal government, hundreds is the state government, fifties is the county government, tens is the local government. They broke it down for representation. And they went further. They said there's three branches of government. And they said there's the executive, which is the king, there's the legislative, which is the law giver, and then there's the judicial, which is the judge. 
And so they lay this out. And as they lay this out, they start to develop a representative form of government. And this is where you live today. And you've experienced more freedom than any other culture in the history of the world. And by the way, you can vote yourself into socialism in this nation, but you're going to have to shoot your way out. You're going to say, I don't want the Bill of Rights. I, want, I, 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 want, I, I just want equality. And I get what you want because you see disparity. And it's frustrating and you don't get any answers. And I get all that. Because when the church looks at the law, they always do this. They always say, well, the law is a school teacher to point us, or the law is a school teacher. You need to be saved by grace. But this is what the scripture says. Before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor, our teacher, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. So what they're saying is this. They're saying, the law is a school teacher. And it points you to Christ. And while it's pointing you to Christ, it's keeping you safe. How's it keeping you safe? Because you have moral law. So we don't steal, we don't lie, we don't cheat, we don't covet. And we get to live together. We still have many freedoms and we don't need to have a police force or a standing army because we're learning that we're accountable to God and we're accountable to each other. Well, I'm not into your Christian religion, but I recognize that there's a moral law. Just like, just like that young man did. It, does, it, it, it took all of six minutes to make him realize, you know what? I get it. You can't have, you can't have a book without an author. You can't have absolutes without a God who created them. And who's to say what's right if there is no ultimate authority? That's anarchy. And kids are like, I don't really want that, but I do want equity. I want equality. And what's the point of the law then? How do we apply this law? And this is where we, we come to a guy by the name of... Uh, John MacArthur McGuire, who was a law professor at Harvard Law School, and he gave the commencement speech in 1911 that was so moving that every other graduating class from Harvard Law School, the, the dean recites this statement as he commissions them into the legal practice. And this plaque is, as I've shared many times, in the stairwell of Harvard Law School. And, and this, is, this, is, this is a secular declaration of the importance of the law that the church, the church has abandoned our kids want it. Culture's demanding it. Lawyers teach it. But the church avoids it. You are ready to aid in the shaping and application of those wise restraints that make men free. Three to five million Jews live together without a police force or a standing army in freedom. Because they were moral. They knew that they were accountable to a supreme God and to each other. Remove that and you have Lord of the Flies. If you don't know what that is, read the book. But how do restraints make you free? Super Bowl Sunday. There's Patrick Mahomey, my Mahomey. He's a phenom. 
And he trains continually. When I heard, it's a lot like Kobe when he was talking about Shaq, how he was frustrated. He were, the, the, the really neat tributes to Kobe. And then he was talking about how he struggled with Shaq because Shaq never practiced his free throws. And they knew to foul him because he'd just throw up bricks. But every time he saw Kobe, he's practicing, 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 practicing. Because he never wanted to let his teammates down. He was applying restraints while, while Shaq was out there going doing pizza commercials. Kobe's just sinking them. He was applying restraints in order to pursue excellence. And, and here, this, this, this fella is getting ready to enjoy football at a level that none of us in this room will ever know because he's been applying restraint his whole life. This is how we raise a culture. This is how we raise children. This is how we raise a future. It gives us freedom. He has the freedom. Patrick Mahomey has the freedom to enjoy football at a level I'll never have the freedom to enjoy because he applied restraints to, to be able to enjoy that. And for those of us who just feed our flesh and give us, we get everything we want, we end up just worthless. He's going to be playing football today in the most premier football event in, in the world. And while he's playing, this is what I'll be doing. No restraint. Which one would you rather have your child be? <laughs> liberty like your muscles gets lost if you don't exercise it. Good government only happens when we exercise liberty that God has entrusted to us. This temple was in the center of the culture. And this is where we're going to transition because that temple brought liberty. These restraints gave them freedom where they didn't need a police force and a standing army. They, they dwelt together like you always wanted as neighbors. You, could, you didn't have to lock your door. And, and it didn't come about easy. Paul, Paul was striving for it. He wrote this when he was in a prison. He said, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty for which Christ has set you free. Establish this in culture. Which brings us to this place of communion. And I think it's fitting. Because as you recall the slide when Moses came down with the commandments and the temple became the center of the community and they didn't need a police force or a standing army and they lived together. It wasn't always that way. Jesus said, upon this rock, I'm going to build my ecclesia. We like to think it's church, and so we, we subjugate ourselves to these four walls and think this is the only place that it matters. He never intended that. When he said ecclesia, you're to be sent into the culture like Jason Merrill, where you're, you're, you're making an impact in every one of these mountains of cultural influence. You're going in and you're, you're applying these laws of nature, nature's God, and you're, you're impacting culture. You're setting captives free. You're bringing the law that protects them and keeps them safe until faith comes. But the church has abdicated its responsibility. They avoid the public square. They don't want conflict. And the pulpits don't teach it. And, and they're complicit. They're complicit in, in the enslavement of our children. They're complicit in the destruction of our culture. And our children want hope. 
And the Lord said that you're the ecclesia. Go in and make a difference. That's why I was so excited about showing that clip. Did you see him praying around the table? That came about because somebody on that set said, this is a good scene. And they contended for truth. They weren't covetous. They had a fear of God. 1 Corinthians 3 says, Paul writing, he says, don't you know you're now the temple of God? It's not in the, it's not in the center. It's not a tent anymore. You're the temple now. And the spirit of God dwells in you. And if anyone defiles that temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy. And you're that temple. You're the center of culture now. You're the driving force. You're the ecclesia. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? No. No. We're together in this. This is a larger gathering of the ecclesia. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit, but we're gathering together and we're, we're being infused to make a bigger impact into the culture. And it brings us to this place of communion because the Apostle Paul said flee sexual immorality and this idea that we're a different people. You see, we're not, we don't observe the law to be saved. We've been saved. We do it because we're saved. We want to do the right thing. We want the world to see that we're governed by a higher source. We want to make an impact in our culture. We want them to envy what we have. And we can only do it together. Paul says in Ephesians, therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles, prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple, an ecclesia. We've been built together in a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Why am I sharing all this? Because we're gonna take communion. For 1,500 years, the church looked at communion as the literal body and blood of Christ. And it changed. To Catholics, this is the Eucharist. And communion is the center to their church. For Protestants, it's like, can we get this over with? We got a Super Bowl. It's like, throw the bread down, cup, yeah, crack it, walk on. Communion has become almost irrelevant in the Protestant church. We want to make it special, but the Apostle Paul points it out, and this is, this is it, and then we're going to take communion. He says, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. There's also factions among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to go and eat and drink in, or do you despise the church and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I don't praise you, Paul says. This is 1 Corinthians 11. He goes on to say, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, and this is what we're doing now, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was to be betrayed took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took 
the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You see, all we have in common is the fact that we're saved by grace through faith. And how did that happen? Jesus. We were kept under guard by the law, but faith has come now. And now we're no longer governed by laws. We're governed as the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are now the center of community and culture. And our testimony matters in every ecclesia he places us in. Being honest is important. Being kind is important. Not coveting, not stealing. Keeping your word. Being faithful. It matters. We're his body. And if we profess the name of Christ and one of us defiles that because we're selfish and we go off the reservation, we're no different than the world. Paul says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so let him eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and and many die. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Be selfless. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. This is about your belly. You're in the wrong place. The Lord is saying, and this is the way the church did it for years, because they were the minority in the world. They said, we're all we got. And if we're going to make an impact in the Conejo Valley, it's going to be dependent on all of our testimonies. Some are hands, some are feet, some are eyes, some are shoulders. But we've got to do it together. And if one of us is lying and stealing and being unfaithful, We're all affected because we're the temple. We're the ecclesia. We're the hope for this. This is the the closest you're going to find in utopia if we do it right. And it will minister and matter to our young people. And we step into a world that doesn't want us and we love them. And people aren't the enemy, they're the opportunity. And you're reviled and you don't revile back. And you're persecuted and you count it all joy. And you endeavor and you serve and you do it willingly. And when we do this, just remember one loaf of bread, the Lord, he breaks it. He says, I'm going to be broken. And these little pieces. And when you're coming up, we're all part of the body of Christ. We're that ecclesia to declare his presence until his return. That his kingdom will come on the earth as it is in heaven. That we would set an example that we could live in unity. This division in the church would stop. And you don't don't eat of this and drink of it in an unworthy manner. You look around and say, am I a hindrance to this body? Am I adversely affecting the testimony of Christ's presence in this community? Am I scared? Am I fearful? Am I self-focused? Or am I yielded? And it awaits you. The grace is still here, it always has been. But the calling is even greater. And he says, come.